Anyway. All right. We'll get, we'll get going. So we're going through the five solas. All right. And the, the issue here, it gets a little tough, is uh, you can cover these, but you actually need a lot of time to cover them well. And we'll talk, I'll talk about that a little bit. Today we're going to take on sola fide. All right. And the goal of these classes, more than anything, we uh, sat down, we thought, how do we get you guys to start thinking about? Let's give you the nuggets of truth that come out of these teachings so that you have them, you can lock them down and, and recognize them. When you're walking around today and you run across other people who claim the faith, and maybe you'll see some of the nuances in here, and you'll be able to recognize differences in what's going on. The last thing we really hope is that it stimulates you to go study on your own. All right? That's, that's the goal of most of these classes when we set them up. We know unless we did a year-long class, it's really tough to get as in-depth as you could. So like when I was sitting in class, the professors had a whole semester to walk me through a book. All right? And you can get into real detail. Here we, we shorten that down. So put that in the back of your brain also. Most of the goal here is to get you some truth, teach you, edify you, as Colossians tells us to do with each other, but ultimately edify you to go study on your own. There are so many books in our library. Everyone who comes in here always is amazed at what we have in that library, and you can really pick up and learn from what we give you. All right, so that's, that's kind of the purpose behind this. I'm going to turn off the light. I'll turn it back on. I have different things I have to do. All right, for those of you here last week, Jimmy Ellis, or Jim Ellis, I guess I should say. I'm still from the old days. Walked us through an overview. And I'm going to touch on that real quickly just to get us back up to speed. One of the things he talked about, what we're talking about today is sola fide, and it was the material cause. That goes back to some old Greek philosophy of how you, how you form arguments and how things are built. Material cause essentially means the main argument. All right? Dave Schlemme next week is going to take on what was called the formal cause. What is the basis? What's my authority for having this argument? So there's authority why I think I can argue this. Then there's the argument itself. That's what we're talking about today, the argument itself. And he kind of gave us a couple of quotes. He gave us Martin Luther. Martin Luther is known for saying, upon this, sola fide, the church stands or falls. All right? That's how important he saw this as he developed it. John Calvin is quoted as saying, this is the hinge upon which all religion turns. All right? So when you look at the two, two of the greater reformers, I mean, Zwingli and others will have the same comments. But that's what this is seen by the reformers. When they saw it, it is that important. All right? The other thing he walked us through is there's five of them. And Jim reminded us that they're slogans, right? Sola fide, sola scriptura, sola gratia, solo Christu. It can be solus Christus also and sola Dea gloria. Again, we're doing sola fide. Jim did a nice job of kind of summarizing for us, right? We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the personal work of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, according to the scriptures alone, right? That's a nice summary. I like the way he did that. The other thing that Jim wanted to know was, it wasn't like there was a bunch of just missing information, right? And especially from the Catholic Church, and when Luther and these guys argued, one of the things the Catholic Church would argue is tradition. We rely on the church fathers. And one of the things Jim walked us through was they turned around and said, look at the church fathers. You have Basil the Great, who's one of the Cappadocian fathers, right? Look what he writes. What does he write? Lacking true righteousness to be justified by faith alone, sola fide, right? So Basil's writing in 375, all right. You pointed, he pointed out that John of Christendom, the same thing, right? Adhere to faith alone. And then he quoted uh, Augustine, which the church fathers all, you know, other than St. Francis, uh, Augustine's one of the big ones that you rely on. And he talks about the same thing, that for what could not be fulfilled through the law is fulfilled through faith. 
The point being, it wasn't like all of a sudden Luther popped up. He, he started pointing back saying, we, we're wrong. We got it out of whack. Something's happened to us over the past years, and we've missed out, and we need to get back to where we belong. Right? And that's why they're called reformers. Their job was to reform the church. Right? And one of the reasons I love, this, I love these topics also is a lot of church history gets mixed into it. So I'm going to walk you through a few things in a second. So we're talking about sola fide. We've talked about sola means solely, alone, only, right? Fide, faith. Think of our marine, semper fidelis, always faithful. Adeste fidelis, O come all ye faithful. All right, same word. But they're slogans, right? When you say sola fide, that's a slogan. The actual theological and doctrinal statement that we're talking about today is justification by faith alone, right? So the whole issue that came up was justification by faith alone, sola fide. So that's the argument. That's the full doctrinal statement, all right? Quickly, when you think about Luther and who he was and where he lived, this is essentially, it's, it's pared down for the sake of it be all over the place. But if you think about Christianity as a family tree, there's Judaism, then there's Jesus, right? He's the cornerstone. Then you have what is called the one holy Catholic, universal Catholic, apostolic church. So we read in Galatians that it was founded on what? The apostles. All right? Up until about 500, it's actually 451 technically, there was one church effectively. What happened is there was a bit of a, of a disagreement over, if you think about the creeds classes, there was a disagreement over who Christ was, his, his divinity, his humanity, how they mixed together. At that point, the church in Egypt, Alexandria, splits off the Coptic church. And so you have a bit of a split, but there's still one church primarily. The next thing that happens is about 500 years later, so there's kind of like this 500-year rhythm, right? About 451, the Coptics break off. About 1,000, there's what's called the Great Schism. All right? And what happened there, there had been disagreement all along. Remember that there were bishops, Rome, Alexandria, Constantinople. They all had kind of different power structures they were going for and ruled differently. There was a disagreement that happened in about a thousand, several disagreements, one major one, and the Eastern Orthodox Church breaks off. So now you have two churches. Right? You've got what we now have, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, what we would consider Orthodox churches, and then the Western Church. Luther is in the Western Church. So these kind of all drop off. Luther comes along 500 years later. Okay, there's that rhythm again. And you wind up having the Reformation. The church responds badly. And Jimmy talked about this last week. The Council of Trent basically said, you know what? Everything the Reformers are saying is heresy, essentially, anathema. And the church breaks. And then what you have happen is what we have today. And essentially you have this just spiraling out of control almost of you have a lot of different churches. And usually it's over smaller things, but a lot of times it's over bigger disagreements doctrinally. So that's why today we have so many churches. When Luther's around, remember, there's one church, one Western church. He had a problem with the church. You had a problem with the church. You didn't pack your bags and go down the street to one that agreed with you. You were stuck. So it's important to remember they only knew one church. There was no other option. So when they go to reform the church, it's exactly what they want to do. They want to get back to the truth. Okay? Does that get you in his mindset? This is who Luther is. This is what he grew up in. This is what he's thinking. Second part you've got to understand about the world Luther grew up in. First of all, it was run by the Vulgate. Okay? The Vulgate, vulgar, we get the language. The basic Latin. 
All right. And so what happened is the scriptures were translated into the Latin, called the Vulgate, and it became authoritative and authoritarian. All right. You know the difference between those two, right? Authoritarian is basically a dictator. Authoritative means it has, it has authority. And Dave will talk about some of that next week. So everything in the church was governed by that. Also, Jimmy talked about this last week. Everything was done in Latin. Services were done in Latin. Your theological arguments were done in Latin. All right? The scriptures you relied on were in Latin. Part of the problem with that was sometimes the words in Latin didn't match up with the original sources. And the reason this is an issue is, think about it. You have the Dark Ages. We call them the Dark Ages. There was still stuff going on. Right? And if there were monks, there were monks fastidiously copying the Greek and the Hebrew and the Latin. But by and large, people stopped using a lot of the, the Greek and the Hebrew texts. Right? They were there, and there were some people that did. You have kind of the Renaissance happen. All those things come back, and now you've got reformers. Here's the cool thing about reformers. All right? The guys that God called up at that time, they could all read, speak, write Greek. They could all read, speak, write Hebrew. They could all read, speak, write Latin. They could all read, speak, and write their own language. All right? If you want a great story, listen to John Piper, his biography on Martin Luther, and you will be just, it, it almost shames you. This man taught three times on Sunday, a sermon every day of the week, a Bible study every night of the week for his family and friends, and wrote a publishable paper, not just a paper, publishable paper, every day for 15 years. All right? That's the kind of man God called. So he's starting to look at his world. He says, okay, I'm in this Latin. We'll talk about in a second how him having all this other background plays in. The other piece we have to think about is the world he came into was a sacramental world. All right? It was governed by the sacraments. Let me draw some. And the, essentially, those, those are baptism, confirmation, penance, the Eucharist, marriage, ordination, and extreme unction. Let me do this real fast because I think it helps. That's where i got to turn the light on. So in Luther's world... I think this one will work. Let's say you're born. How do you draw a cradle? There we go. There's a cradle. You come over here. We'll do a little daisy. And you die. Right? That's your life right? for, for Luther. So when you think about what's going on, the first thing that happens within the first few days, you get baptized. All right? You have baptism. At some point along here, confirmation. At his time of life, seven years was considered the age of reason. So when you hit seven, they believed that you had some reason at that point, and you could decipher right and wrong a little better. All right, as we work our way through, I'm going to skip penance for a second, because also along here is the Eucharist. After you have been confirmed, right, Eucharist, I can't spell, the Eucharist, the table, the Lord's table. All right, as you work your way down, there's marriage and ordination. Marriage worked both ways. If you were a priest, you married who? Jesus and the church, if, you're, uh, if you weren't, you married like we do. All right? The next one has one that fried Luther later, but ordination. The reason he didn't like it was it formed a caste. Right? There's one sacrament that if you didn't become a priest or a nun, you never got. That's ordination. So another one that popped in was ordination. And then down at the end is extreme unction. That's its official name. I gave you on the list. Uh, most of you will know it as last rites. Right? Last rites. That comes from James. What are we told in James? If you're sick, what are you supposed to do? Call the elders. What do they do? Pray for you and pour oil on you. Unction means oil. All right, so extreme unction. 
Um, and that was, you have to be on the verge of death. So uh, there's a good example a lot of guys use. Like a soldier going into battle. Last rites. Yeah, yeah, they call it that for a reason. Um, a soldier going into battle can't have last rites or extreme unction. If he's mortally wounded, he can have it. All right, so it's not, it's not a preventative. It's, it's the last thing you do. Overriding all of this, right, and part of extreme unction is penance. Okay, that's part of it, is penance and the process of penance. Okay? So when you think about your life, it's governed by the church. This is the world Luther came into. Right? So his life was, he was born, he was baptized, he had confirmation at some point, he becomes a priest through his conversion, the Eucharist he took part of, and then as he worked his way down his ordination, he head toward extreme unction and penance. All right? That makes sense? That's his life. That's your life every day. Where this comes into play... Remember when I said the three bars on the battery were... Yeah. Well... Not so much? No. Okay. We're going to swap it out, folks. Yes. Yeah. Sacrament of the sick. Yeah. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. They have changed some things. Can you hear me better now? I feel like a Verizon commercial. All right. All right. So, yeah, that's a good point. They have actually gotten rid of the idea of last rites um, as a, as a, as a uh, sacrament. All right? So that's his world that he lives in. Okay, now this is the crux of the matter for us today. This is what you kind of have to get your head around. And we're going to talk about penance, all right? Because this is all about justification. The church taught when you were baptized, you were infused with grace. Think about a tea bag. You put it in the water, you dip it, it changes color. That's infused. All right, I'm going to write that down because we use a different term, and we'll get to it in a minute. So infused. It's important. We say, hmm, how do I do that? Imputed. All right, so you will, we'll talk about that in a second. So the church would say, you've been infused with grace at baptism. You keep that grace until you commit a mortal sin. If any of you care, I printed out a Catholic uh, document on mortal sin. You will agree with 95% of it. It's essentially any sin you commit. If you break the Ten Commandments, you've committed a mortal sin. All right, lie, cheat, steal, go with girls who do. Boom. So once that happens, mortal sin breaks grace. Right? Grace is broken. Right? So this is Luther. I was baptized. I had grace. It's gone. This, you'll see this quote a lot. You'll actually, uh, I think R.C. Sproul refers to it as they re realized it as a shipwreck of the soul when you sinned. Right? Mortal sin destroys the grace of God in the heart of the sinner. All right? For grace to be restored... What you had to do was penance. Right? Penance was made up of confession or contrition, depending on where you read. Right? Absolution. The priest would look at you, and what would he say? Te absolvo. I absolve you. Right? And then there were works of, depends what you want to call them, works of mediation or works of satisfaction. And those were often alms. You know, yeah, those were alms or works you had to do, and the priest would give them to you. By doing that, you reestablished grace, Right? In you. Now, the key thing you've got to remember, it's subtle, but what happens is you 
are working with grace to get somewhere, right? If it's infused in you, sanctification and justification mix. You had something done? Correct. Good point. It's not confession to God, but it's confession to the priest. Correct. Did everyone hear that? Don brings up a good point. The confession had to be to an ordained priest of the church. They had to intercede for you. Right? So there was no priesthood of the believers. Right? Okay. So the the thing to remember then, here's Luther. He's a believer. He believes in justification. The church teaches justification. The Catholic Church, believe it or not, teaches that you need Christ's blood. And we often think they only teach works. They do in the sense that they say justification requires you to work with God's grace. All right? So now you've got Luther. He's a monk's monk. That's a quote. Does that remind you of anybody else? Pharisee's Pharisee. He was a monk's monk. And he got brutally frustrated because he looked and said, I am facing a righteous God. And he was on his knees more than anybody, confessing and confessing and confessing because he, he writes in his writings, I never knew if I was justified because I kept sinning. And I'm a monk living in the middle of nowhere, Wittenberg, and I can never be guaranteed that I'm justified. And, I, and so he spent a bulk of his time, am I still not working? Bulk of his time. All right. The bulk of his time confessing. All right. And one of the phrases he hated was this one, the righteousness of God, because he could never do enough. And he realized that. He looked at that. Now, here's the cool thing about God. I love this. God takes this man who's very smart and says, I'm going to have someone have you come to Wittenberg, and you're going to teach. And we want you to work on your doctoral program. And we're going to turn you into the head of theology. From 1513 to 1517, what happens in the end of 1517? Jimmy talked about it. 95 Theses, which, by the way, were written in Latin because they were a theological argument. All right, He didn't write them in German. He wasn't trying to stir up the masses. Essentially, Martin Luther winds up teaching these books. Think about it. He starts with the Psalms, the penitential Psalms. How many times does he run across David going, God doesn't care about my works. He wants my heart, right? So he works his way through the Psalms. He goes to Hebrews, and I don't remember who it was. Is he a Hank Hanegraaff or Walter Martin? They always referred to Hebrews as the book of Hebrews, written by a Hebrew to the Hebrews about not being Hebrews, right? Or essentially, stop acting like it's your works. Man, it's this, it's this grace of Jesus Christ. So then Martin Luther teaches that book. Right? follows up by teaching Romans. Okay, forget it. Right? The first eight chapters are all about grace and justification. Right? Then he gets into Galatians, which is a polemic. Polemic is just an argument for. All right? So God, in his wisdom, puts Martin Luther on this path. Dave Schlumi pointed out something to me that I, that I think is real important. How many years did Martin Luther work while he's working on the idea of justification? Close to five years, four and something years. When we've all spent four years going through those books, you'll have a better idea of justification. You want a study program? I'm ashamed I haven't done this, really. You want a study program? Do what Martin Luther did. You know, get, get Don to walk through the Psalms with you. 
Bob and other guys already did Hebrews. You can just pull that up on tape and do it as a study. Do Romans, do Galatians. You know what he says? At the end of that, he had an aha moment. He said, you know what? Justification is actually beautiful, and the righteousness of God is wonderful. Because as he worked his way through, he said, God is just and the justifier, and it's not about what I do. Right? It's not about what I do. And that was his aha moment. All right? Enough history. So then he had to write down, what does justification by faith alone mean? All right? And what he said was, first of all, it's a forensic, which just means legal. Right? So if you think about forensic pathology, it's about getting everything together so you can go to court. He said it's a forensic decision. It's a judicial act of God. Right? It's legal. It's not moral. Go back over here. What is everything about in the penance? Moral. Is my morality good enough? And he says, that's not what the scriptures are showing me. It's showing me that it is an act of God. Plain and simple. It's a legal declaration. Shorter Catechism, when it's talking about it, says, here's how you think about it. It's, he pardons all our sins and accepts us, even though we're not worthy, as righteous. It's kind of how they encompass it. Second part was, it's a declaration. He said, the thing about it is, it's not a process. It's not about grace going away, me working with grace, me getting grace back, me working with grace. It's not a process, it's a declaration. God declares and we're done. Second is, this is important. It's the work of a judge, not the accused. And that threw everything on its head, because we're the accused. So we can work all we want, we're not getting anywhere. Because the judge has to be the one that declares it. And the last was, he said, it revealed a new status. And that was his freeing thing. That's why he could turn back around and say, I'm in love with God now. I love his righteousness. Because he had a new status. All right? Make sense? All right? So that's the first thing they wrote down, justification's nature. They said we have to talk about what it is versus what we've thought. One of the big, big chapters and verses and areas that he went to for justification's grounds. Right? He said, what is the ground for this then? We're very good in our, uh, in our group of saying, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, period. Boink. Right? And it ends. This, this passage is our joy. Read on. What does it say? And so all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, what? And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier, which is where Luther got it, of the one who has faith in Jesus. It does, it's not showing up as brightly as I wanted. I put red ones. These are the things that, this is a theological treatise for you on justification. You want one passage to mull over and over and over? This is it. And Luther pulled out and said, you know what? First of all, it's a gift. And it's a gift in Jesus. It's received by faith. Right? What happens? He makes a, God makes a declaration and he passes over former sins because he's just and the, only the just can justify. Right? So when you think about justification's grounds, Luther says, right here in Romans, guys, you don't have to go anywhere else. You can stay in this one passage and all my arguments are made for me. And we as believers, all our arguments are made for you. That should make you smile about justification by faith alone. This has changed a little bit, but then what they would say is the basis for this, obviously, is the death of Christ. 
Today we typically say his life, because how he lived, because he lived perfectly, his death and his resurrection are the basis. So we've nuanced it some since then, but that, that's how they looked at the grounds. So justification's grounds are basically Christ, Christ alone, and it's received as a gift by faith. Right? That's where it came from. Does that make sense? Any questions or comments on that? Okay. Next, they had to talk about the means, which means the mechanism. How, do, how does justification happen? Over here, how does it happen? Penance. So it's, it's a work, right? I confess to a priest. He absolves me. He gives me some works to do, give alms, work for the poor, and I, and I get justified. So they said, well, what is it over here? Because that's not what we believe. And they said, well, it's faith, right? It's not the result of our good behavior. It's faith. Faith is the means for, for justification. And when you go to Ephesians, Jimmy used this last week, but for by grace have you been saved through faith, not of your own doing, right? So that was key. Now, the church believed in faith, but they used different. So sola fide is what we use. Sola, they used fides, right, F-I-D-E-S. Fides meant faith, but it meant faith in the church. The church and the traditions, and there's even a statement that they make where they say, faith, if you just believe that the church is teaching the correct things, that's saving faith. All right? that, so when Luther's growing up, just believing that the church is accurate in its doctrinal statements was enough to get you over the hump. And they're saying, nah, not, not so much. We're looking at that, and there's too much good behavior in that. It's still a gift of God. It has nothing to do with me. We are saved through faith. Then you go back to Romans, which is where Luther spent so much time. And it says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. And by what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Faith. That's the mechanism for justification. Faith. All right. Next thing they had to think about was, okay, the elements of faith over here. Or we're infused at baptism, we have the cycle we go through, and we're working. Said, so what do we see the elements being? And the first one is, they said, there's two parts to this. There's a subtraction and an addition. I hated chemistry because I could never balance equations, but that's essentially what they're talking about. You're balancing an equation out. And so the first thing that they said was the subtraction part is forgiveness. Not that forgiveness is taken away from us, but forgiveness takes our sin away from us. All right? So there's a subtraction. And then when you think about Romans, it's actually quoting, Paul's going back and quoting David, but it's the idea of blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, right? Blessed is a man against whom the Lord does not count as sin. We talked about that briefly in, in the service this morning. There was, a, there was a reference to that. So forgiveness, this idea that there's something taken away from me, that's part of the element of faith and, and justification. The second part is the addition. This is where we're different. So, when we talk about grace and justification, remember it's infused, right? The term we use is imputed, imputed. It's a legal term, right? And essentially what it means is you get credited for the acts of somebody else. Someone else does something and you get the credit for it, even though you don't deserve it. And I, I have a more formal definition for you on the glossary. But that's essentially what's going on. They said, okay, subtraction is our guilt's taken away. The other part is Christ's righteousness is reckoned to us. Now, I like reckoned because it just sounds like you're riding a horse, but uh, you'll see reckoned, imputed, you'll see counted, depending on the version. It's, it's a, it's a um, ah, accounting. I couldn't think of what it was for a second, an accounting term. It's something gets moved from one column to the other. It's counted. 
So when you think about what happens in Romans, it says, but the words, Paul's referring back to Abraham at this point, right, as an example. It says, but the words that was counted to him, they weren't written for his sake alone. They were written for us, right? Yeah, he's talking about Abraham, but he's talking to us too. And he's saying, for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And Luther's like, how much more plain can it get? Look at that, guys. That should just rock our world. And it did, eventually. So imputation. second part in Galatians, it just feels, it feeds on it. But the idea is that you're not justified by works of law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So when they look at the elements of justification, Luther and then eventually Zwingli and Calvin and Knox, right, Beza to a certain extent, all said, this is how it's split for us. These are the elements. That makes sense. All right. So the last problem they had was faith. Remember how I just talked about the church said, hey, faith in that the church is right is enough to save you? Right? And they started, started working on it and saying, well, it's true. True faith is that you have to know the gospel message. If you don't know the gospel message, you can't have faith because you don't know what you're believing in. Faith isn't faith and faith. Does that make sense? A lot of people, you'll see that error sometimes. People will have faith in their faith. It's not what you have faith in. You have faith in the work of Christ on the cross. That's where your faith. So they said you have to know the gospel. The second part is you have to believe. You have to believe in Christ. True faith will have both of those. But they did bump up against the church, and the church was saying, hey, you know what? Just having a belief. And they said, well, then what do we do with James? This is a problem for us. James says, hey, even the demons and Satan do these two things. They know and believe, but they certainly aren't saved. So what do we do with that? How do we handle that? And what they came up with, it may be a little low, they said the last and final piece is you have to have a personal trust. Fiducia is the Latin. If any of you are in law or accounting or business, fiduciary, a trust relationship. So the last thing they said is it has to be a personal trust in Christ. That's required. It can't be a trust in something. It has to be a personal trust in Christ. So justification, its means, right? the way you execute it is faith, and faith has to be built of these things. Right? What's interesting about this is we have some things going on. So a few years ago at Westminster, there was a big discussion. It was called the Shepherd's Controversy. There was a guy named Shepherd. He started preaching and teaching in his classes, hey, no, you know what? It's works and faith. It's works and faith together. He basically got run out of town. That was just 20 years ago. Today, go in our library. Pull up any book by N.T. Wright. All right? What do, what do they teach? They're teaching Paul is misunderstood. And they're teaching that it's faith in a covenant community that saves you. Does that sound familiar? Faith in a covenant community. Now you know why D.A. Carson and Piper and all these guys are all up in arms about N.T. Wright's writings when it comes to justification. There's some writings of his I love. But when it comes to justification, he's pushing back now and saying it isn't personal trust. And there are other men with him. And it's starting to show up in evangelical circles. It's not, just, it's not personal trust. It's trust in the covenant community. And that will save you. Right? Got the problem? It's a problem. Right? Does that all make sense? All right. Last one, you can't see the lines, but uh, I found this chart somewhere, and I think this is helpful, and it, it may be hard to see on there and I'll, on the printout, but I'll get it for you. Essentially, down the side, we have 
traditions that are common that you'll run into on a daily basis. Roman Catholics, Lutherans, Methodists, the Orthodox Church, Greek, Syrian, whatever, and then the Reformed, which tends to be where most of us fall out of, right? If you think about justification, what the next thing happens is Roman Catholic, it's a process, right? We talked about it being a process. For Lutherans, it's an event. It's declared. Martin Luther, they still hold on to that. Methodists, which come out of the Anglican branch, uh, it's an event. So that's a declaration, right? The Orthodox Church is going to say it's a process. And then as Reformed people would say, it's an event. It's a declaration by God. The next part, and I've defined these for you, is what kind of action is it? And the technical theological terms are synergism and monergism. Synergism, synergy, two things working together. All right? So we already know because of the discussion we had, in the Roman Catholic Church, it's clearly synergism. You and God working together, you working with his grace. When you get to the Lutherans, they would say, no, it's, moder- it's God alone. Right? That's what monergism means. The Methodists, that's why they're called Methodists. It's a method. You work out your salvation. They are synergists when it comes to justification. Orthodox is going to be synergistic, and then you're going to have Reformed, which is going to be divine monergism again. All right? It's God alone. Here's the thing that, this is what got Luther going, right? He, he was angry at God because he couldn't ever be perfectly justified. When you go down the process, if you see, obviously in the Roman Catholic, you can lose it via mortal sin. It's the same in the Orthodox Church. You can lose your justification through mortal sin, and you have to go through penance, right? In the Lutheran Church, modern Lutheran Church, I should say, it can be lost through a loss of faith. If you lose your faith, you can lose your justification, all right? In the Methodist, you can lose it. You lose it by not being sanctified, or your sanctifying process stops. And then in Reformed, we say it can't be lost because I didn't have anything to do with it to begin with, right? God declared it. I had no right to it. I had no ability to it. He made a legal declaration on my behalf. I'm locked in, all right? And then the last is, the confusion, and we talked about a little bit, of justification and sanctification, right? If you think about our tradition, we split them, right? They're, they're not the same thing. We say they're both there because of our union with Christ. God promises he will continue a good work in us, right? So we will have good works. So it is sola fide, but it's with works if you are a believer. And then if you think about the Orthodox say it's part of theosis. Theosis is just a fancy word for saying you're working out your divinity, Right, you're working out the divine to be more like the divine. The Methodists will say that your your justification is dependent on your continued sanctification, and then Lutherans would say they're separate. Right, so justification and sanctification are separate, and justification happens first. All right, so hopefully that helps you because you will run into in the United States you'll run into all of these almost on a daily basis. That's pretty. That's a pretty normal group. All right. So the implications. And here's what the reformers said. First is assurance. Right? Sola fide should make everybody in the room feel assured because it's not your work. It's God's work. He declared it. So the first thing that they, they went to is assurance is one of the most comforting things we have. You shouldn't be worried about, am I going to die out of a state of justification? I don't have to have to go through the penance process, which doesn't mean you don't have to be on your knees, right, to God saying, I've sinned, please forgive me, First John. Second one's obedience. This one's an interesting one. Justification demands that you be obedient. Right? And, that, and so there you'll see the phrase, it's not salvation through works or justification through works, right? But there will be works after justification. 
Right? You will be obedient to Christ. You will do those things that you are to do. You will, and, and Dave, Dave was quoting out of Colossians this morning. What does he say? He, he, he redeemed us, right, in his body of flesh through his death. What for? So that we can be presented holy, blameless, and above reproach. Above reproach. That means when the world looks at you, and we see this in First Peter also, they look at you and they can't hold anything against you. They try, but you're living a life that is obedient. And justification by faith alone should make you be obedient. You should want to be obedient because of this doctrine. It should drive you to be obedient. Right? And the last one they said was, wow, it's happened before. It'll happen again. Can't believe the church got this out of whack. And then so they always push, stay on your guard. Stay on your guard. And, we, and I just mentioned N.T. Wright and other guys who are writing right now, who are in the evangel- in theory, in the evangelical circles, and they're already corrupting the idea of sola fide. All right? All right, Ken, I'm working. And that's it. All right? That's sola fide in a nutshell. I would encourage you guys to go back and study those passages that Luther did and, and see where they get you. All right? Any last questions? Anything that... All right, guys. Thanks, guys.